We've had a century of broadcasting history as we know it. So how can we rethink broadcasting history for what we're creating here, which is really the new archive? Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Eric Klein. With me today is Paul Reismandel and Jennifer Waits, and we're talking about the preservation of radio on the 100-year anniversary of broadcasting. It's coming up in the year 2020, and as today's guests will let us know on the program, the archiving of the sounds of those 10 decades of radio is a patchwork. It has happened in fits and starts. Some radio is well-preserved, other radio completely gone forever. And most importantly, at this very moment, as we are speaking into microphones, there are tapes that are in personal collections, basements, garages, freezers, who knows? But there are so many tapes that in this lifetime, but even maybe in the next couple of years, if they're not uh, preserved, put into a uh, archive that has the money to preserve them, as well as digitized in a way in which uh, it's not just on one computer, but it's backed up on in in many ways. If it's not done now, it's not going to get done at all. And those sounds, those unique sounds of radio history could very well be lost. We're speaking today on Radio Survivor with two guests who are members of the Radio Preservation Task Force. Jennifer Waits, who's also the producer and co-host of this radio program, is also a member of the Radio Preservation Task Force. So we'll learn more about the work that they do. On the show today, we have... Neil Verma, Assistant Professor of Sound Studies in Radio, Television, Film, and Associate Director of the MA in Sound Arts and Industries at Northwestern University, who's the Conference Director for the Radio Preservation Task Force of the Library of Congress, and Josh Shepard, Assistant Professor of Media and Communication Studies at Catholic University and the Director of the Radio Preservation Task Force. Uh, Neil Verma and Josh Shepard joining us today on Radio Survivor to talk about the incredible work of preserving 10 decades, 100 years of radio history. Stay tuned. Today we're on the line with two folks from the Radio Preservation Task Force to talk about their current and upcoming projects. We have Josh Shepard, who is the director of the Radio Preservation Task Force, and Neil Verma, who is the conference director for the Radio Preservation Task Force. So, Welcome to both of you on Radio Survivor. Thanks. It's great to be here. So, so Josh, it's really a great time to catch up on the Radio Preservation Task Force. Could you give us a brief overview before we do that of, of what the task force is? So the Radio Preservation Task Force is a project of the Library of Congress's National Recording Preservation Board. And essentially, it's a clearinghouse that works together between multiple sectors, four or five distinct sectors, to synthesize different types of work along the political economy of preservation so that projects can begin where they otherwise wouldn't, uh, to organize new projects, and to put together preservation with research. And this is a project of the Library of Congress. It's part of a, a bigger initiative. Could you explain what, it's, what initiative it's, it's part of and when it started? Yeah. So the precedent for the task force is uh, the National Film Preservation Board's uh, film preservation project. And uh, when they began to look into audio preservation per se uh, and built uh, National Recording Preservation Board, they realized that 
there was very scant information even about where radio materials were stored. And this was derived from the National Recording Preservation Plan, which was a project spearheaded by the board with Sam Berlowski, uh, who's the former director of sound at the Library of Congress, written also with Alan Gevinson, who's now the head of the American Archives of Public Broadcasting Project and many others. So essentially, part of the National Recording Preservation Plan was to put together a task force to figure out where recordings were, what state they were in, uh, how we might aid in preservation of those recordings with all of the different copyright and state laws being observed in the process, and how more um, agents and scholars might be activated to work on what turned out to be a pretty dire problem of the disappearing radio uh, archives of the United States. And Neil, why is preservation of radio history so important at this moment? Well, I think it's important for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is that this is a, an entire sector of human activity um, that is in many ways totally invisible to the archive, to um, historians broadly, and also to kind of anyone who cares about the kind of national heritage of the United States. I think our first theme was really about preserving um, lost heritage. I also think it's an incredibly um, uh, exciting area to be working in right now, just because we're kind of in both a golden age of digital archiving and digital archive um, creation, but also a golden age of radio studies. And so bringing these these two things together, there's never been an opportunity like this before. And beyond that, as... Um, as many people will probably tell you who's involved in the project, we just discover these incredible gems that are in, in, in danger of being lost. And and I think preserving them not only kind of creates a new sense of uh, what the, the national history of, of broadcasting was in the United States, but it also like creates new ways of thinking about, um, about broadcasting history. Um, and uh, we can talk a little bit more about that, about how um, the, the changing archive requires a changing history. Maybe maybe you should just jump right into that. Yeah, I'd love to hear that? more about that. Yeah, well, this is one of the things that that I think we're going to focus on in the in the upcoming conference is, um, you know, uh, we've been broadcasting more or less for about a century, broadcasting in the sense of point to mass licensed communications. Um, there are a lot of debates about what counts as the first broadcast and why we should think of it that way. But more or less, it's been about a century of broadcasting, and the vast majority of that time. Um, has been, uh, you know, dominated by what we think of as like large network type broadcasts. Um, and we also have a very like heterogeneous sense of, of what the time was. So we often think of like a golden age in the 1920s to about the 1950s. And then we think of, uh, you know, particularly interesting uh, stations that took place um, after that, and then a kind of rebirth in the NPR era, um, things like that. Um, and so one of the things that the that the um, that the radio preservation task force has done has has been filling in these enormous gaps that we didn't even really realize were gaps um, in between those phases, and some of those gaps are social. So we're um, uncovering all kinds of interesting things about indigenous radio, about African American radio, about radio in borderlands, queer history, things like that. Um, and some of them have been temporal. So I think now, thanks to the preservation task force, we're able to think about. Um, radio history more um, as a as a full picture, as like a lineage that has a beginning and a middle and end, rather than a bunch of different spots. Well, I, uh, I want when you have a different. Uh, yeah, go, go sorry, ahead. Neil. I just want to ask again. Tell tell us more about those gaps. Like what what like what's one of the biggest ones you think that um, that the work of the Radio Preservation Task Force is filling in those gaps? 
Um, well, I think a few of them that, that I've already mentioned, I think um, queer history, African-American history are really important ones. Uh, increasingly uh, non-English radio. I think the biggest gap that's really out there is community radio and um, college radio stations, places like that, that have, has really been very invisible to the, uh, to the, the archival eye and therefore the critical eye. And, and also just you know, uh, the, the sense that we can get people in the same room who are working on stuff from the 20s um, and stuff from the 2000s, you know. Um, we often think of, like, radio history as these, these small pointillist moments, um, but now we're getting this, this sense of w- in which broadcasting and, and ra- the practice of radio is this, like, large, complex, um, incredibly uh, difficult to assess, but exciting unfolding of a whole bunch of different techniques and communities and audiences. Neil, you also mentioned it's a golden age of radio studies, and I'd, I'd love to have Josh chime in on that. What's going on in radio studies right now? And, and Neil sort of alluded to that you can have scholars talking about the 1920s and also contemporary things that are happening in current culture in sound. So if you could talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. Yeah, I think that, um, well, Neil's work, for one, is a pretty good exemplar of the application of film textual analysis and historiography to radio. And that in its own way has been new and uh, influential on different people in the field. I think in, in a broader sense, we're looking at a moment where a lot of the work of our mentor, uh, Michelle Hilmes, uh, is beginning to resonate in which a lot of the genealogies of where things came from institutionally, uh, aesthetically, uh, programming, are being traced through a lot of primary document work, uh, because as everyone knows, a lot of the radio history has been lost, not all of it, but enough that we have to look to other sources for um, tracing these genealogies. Also, radio has, in a way, gone from a kind of obscure topic within film and media studies that was always present, but perhaps always in the backseat, not driving, to having quite a few transnational relationships with federal governments, uh, with uh, public institutions, across disciplines. And the emergence of sound studies has really helped attention to radio. But so has radio studies' intrepid approach to spreading the word about radio in that we've just started working with all kinds of different divisions of uh, audio stakeholding in the U.S. and around the world. And this has, in turn, uh, given a lot more exposure to our very few but (laughs) excited scholars that are associated. And I think that, you know, we're looking at uh, a small group, as usual, of radio scholars, but with a very large group of friends. Uh, And this is in part because of those who built those bridges for us. Uh, I especially should point out Christopher Sterling, uh, retired associate dean at George Washington University, who's the founder of the task force and its first director. And he, in his own way, kind of conquered D.C. And when he retired, um, all of the founders of like NPR showed up at his retirement and toasted wow. him, for example. Uh, and then he uh, brought people like me and Neil and our uh, assistant director, Sean Vancour, and then our other directors in and uh, made it possible for us to do this work. Um, so I think that, that the expansiveness of radio preservation tied with a scholarship that's been emerging has uh, made it a good time for the subfield. So Josh, I wanted to ask you a question, and I'm going to play a little devil's advocate here with you. Um, you know, radio survivors heard by people um, on community radio stations around North America. And for many of them, this is new. 
this is new to hear that anyone is thinking about this or doing anything about this. And I suspect sometimes they have a question of like, well, I mean, why is this important? And, and you sort of touch on it a little bit by addressing these gaps. But I'm, I'd like to hear a little bit more about why somebody who is a radio listener and likes radio would think this is important work. Because often you hear, you know, you listen to NPR, you listen to a new show, you might hear arch- archival tape, you'll hear archival tape elsewhere. It seems like a done deal. It seems like all the important stuff you can find. Why, why would this be important? Why does this require all this effort? So let me, first of all, um, say what a big fan I am of Sally Kane and Ernesto at the National Federation of Community Broadcasters, who are friends, uh, and also the historical work of Pacifica uh, and its affiliates. Um, I think there's really three major reasons that uh, radio preservation should be of note for community broadcasting. Uh, The first is that this is true for all radio. A lot of the materials that you might have on your shelves could be degrading or decaying. So, so I'm actually gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna pinpoint my question. I'm because yeah. I, I maybe I didn't ask it well. So I'm I'm thinking less about the broadcaster and more about the listener. Right, the audience. The audience who's here thinking, okay, uh, you know, I'm hearing about these folks who are preserving radio stuff and and doing so as part of uh, you know a federal agency for all intents and purposes why is this important or why why is it important that the um that this is something being done by the library of congress well um i mean part of the question is is the you know when i talk to my students one of the things i teach them about media history is that one of the exciting things it it opens up for us is the question of who history's for you know if history is just quotes from franklin roosevelt um, if history is just the War of the Worlds broadcast, um, if history is just, um, you know, um, the the first time that Elvis was played on a certain radio station or something like that, then I guess maybe we do have an adequate um, a record of that. But what if history isn't that? What if history is actually the texture of experience that average ordinary people have and the different textures of experience that result from coming, growing up in different places, having different communities, um, coming from different backgrounds? I teach a, a, a critical theorist named Raymond Williams a lot, and Williams has this idea, what he calls the structure of feeling. And what he says is that, you know, we, we tend to think about history in terms of finished products, you know, things that are um, we can point to on a shelf or on a wall or in a text, and we say, that's history. But what that misses is all of the feelings and ideas and thoughts and expressions that went into the creation behind whatever the finished product is. And there is really no medium that explores that or like what he calls, um, what he calls, um, you know, culture when it's in it, before it's solidified, like while it's still in solution. There's no medium that captures that better than, than radio. So I think that's the case I would make. Uh, that's the case I would make for it is that there's there's a totally different history that is taught, told to us by these by these recordings, um, and we're only now in a position where we can even begin to really assess that. So it's a it's a it's you know to me the question is you know what what was history before we even started talking about this? Because oftentimes radio and the recordings of radio are one of the only places where the voices of people are recorded. 
and and the voices of people are recorded in real time like when when a lot of people who one of the uh, one of my hats i wear is i kind of teach podcasting and i teach recording to different kinds of students and i did this project recently interviewing other professors who do similar things and one of them had this really great insight which was this which is that when you get people to record their own voices as they're thinking things through yeah you have this experience of their thought process that's totally different than you get from when you read a paper by them when you read a paper by them, you're not hearing them think in real time. When you listen to a recording of someone, especially a broadcast recording about something really important about public affairs or religion or sports or God or who they understand themselves to be, like these really profound things, you get to hear them and happening in their minds in real time. And there's no other resource that I know of that provides access to that. Yeah, and it sounds, I mean, we think about that sometimes with podcasting where there's all these writers who get to think out loud and you hear them. You hear their voices and their thoughts in the moment in in the 21st century, but to think that there's that opportunity to hear people's thinking in real time, but in the early half of the 20th century is very exciting. That's why preserving radio is important. Yeah, and and, and not to, just not just for famous people too, you know. Right, right. And I was going to sort of draw it out and apply it to the gaps that you put out there. So it's what you're saying that you know we might have the voices of queer people of African-Americans from, you know, the 1960s or, or earlier, you know, having access to media that often was directed at their own communities, you know, African-American folks talking to African-American folks on the radio in in the same form. Right. And, and that's kind of, and that is otherwise very hard to access because even if you were reading it and say a black paper from the 1950s, it wouldn't be the same thought process or voice as might've been expressed on the radio in a more extemporaneous, you know, half hour kind of format. Is that kind of, am I getting the the, the essence of it there? I think that's true. And I also think that there are just elements of, you know, vocal experience that, that can't be captured in text. You know, if we had, theoretically speaking, there's all kinds of interesting things you could do if we had like full, um, full transcriptions of all these broadcasts we're talking about and, you know, hundreds of thousands of broadcasts. I suppose there's some interesting searching things you can do, but I'd still rather hear it. Yeah. I still still think that there's some kind of information and some texture of experience there's, that you can't find. There's no way to know way. if someone's smiling or frowning unless you hear their voice while they're talking. That's true. And also, you know, you don't get to hear, you know, modern language as it evolves. You don't yeah. get to hear inflection. You don't get to hear all these subtleties that, that you hear in your own mother's voice, you know. Um, and, you know, just speaking as someone who spent a long time researching or listening, listening is a, the core of my practice, I just really feel like um, there, there are kinds of thoughts you can't have about this past unless you listen to it. Well, we're on the line. That's the voice of Neil Verma, conference director of the upcoming Radio Preservation Task Force. We're also joined on Radio Survivor Day by Josh Shepard, who is the head of the Radio Preservation Task Force. My name is Eric Klein. I'm here with Paul Reismandel and also uh, Jennifer Waits. Now, Josh, why is 2020 a significant year for broadcasting history? So 2020 turns out to be the apocryphal 100th anniversary of the KDKA broadcast out of Pittsburgh. Uh, And so it's not totally clear that that is the 100th anniversary of broadcasting. And it's actually we've debated. We debate first claims all the time on Radio Survivor. It's just you, you kind of need an in <laughs> for a right. conference, exactly. and it seemed like a very good one. Uh, last conference, we were able to uh, commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Public Broadcasting Act with NPR and a corporation for public broadcasting and many of the founders of 
PBS shows. Uh, and of course, that part was organized by the American Archives of Public Broadcasting and WGBH. Um, and this time, you know, we were looking for another reason to keep the preservation work going. And so that milestone really popped out at us. And actually, it was pointed out to me um, by Dave Walker at Smithsonian Folklife. He said, is that the reason we're having the conference? And I said, yeah, that's why. <laughs> yeah. And tell, <laughs> tell, exactly listeners, why. tell listeners more, Josh, about what this uh, apocryphal 100-year anniversary is. Yeah, I'd like to defer to Neil on this. Okay, good. Um, well, so the the uh, until you know, uh, it, 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 nine out of every ten textbooks that you look to for the history of broadcasting will say that the first broadcast was, uh, in terms of a point to mass um, licensed broadcast, was was done by KDKA in Pittsburgh uh, on hmm. November second in nineteen twenty, and that would be the election day, so it would be election returns, and so it's nice that it maps wow. onto a kind of. Um, a political history. Now, if you look into it deeply, you'll find out that around that time, there's lots of other stations that are also doing things like point to mass broadcasting. And then you have to start thinking about, well, what do you mean by, what do you mean by point to mass? You know, what is that? What's, what are the, what are the, how big does a mass have to be for it to be a point to mass? And One person then you have speaking to think into about, a microphone to right. an audience of some amount of people with radios. Yeah. And and we're not exactly sure how many people listen to it in that particular broadcast. So there's there's a bunch of different and there's a bunch of other stations that were doing something very similar around that time. Um, so you know you kind of have to think about what what the definition of terms are. And there's also something about um, about governmentality in it as well, right? What does it mean to have a licensed broadcast right. versus an unlicensed broadcast? Right. Um, and it is true that this 1920 date is also the culmination of a whole bunch of different kind of technologies and experiments by people like Reginald Fessenden, Frank Conrad, Edwin Armstrong, people like that, that, you know, without whose work, none of this would have been possible. Also, a certain kind of commercial culture was required. So department stores were also selling receiver ah. sets around this time. So were there not receiver sets, you probably wouldn't have heard had point to mass broadcasting. So so point is, it's, it's, it's a complicated and contested history, but one of the great things about radio, I think every radio historian, everyone who's ever really looked into the medium will find this, is that even any time you try and find an origin point, all of a sudden you find something else, yeah, or you something find it to be earlier. more complicated. But yeah, and so... The, the search for origins is 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 it's a it's it can become a parlor game, but it can also be a process of discovery. <laughs> and we're talking about preserving the archives of radio. Uh, they don't they they can't possibly start in the 1920s. There would be no technology to archive sound back then. Um, well, no, right. Uh, but were they... I don't know how early how early are our earliest um, recordings, Josh? Uh, so the earliest transcriptions we've turned up are. I think someone's going to be angry at me about this because I'm going to get this wrong. I'm going to say like 27 or 28 around there. Yeah. And by transcription, or, you're talking about audio recording. The technology was called transcription discs, Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. not text. So basically what they did was that they would literally press a record yeah. uh, and then the record would hold the broadcast. And then uh, those were often used. Uh, once, so the FCC is formed in 1934 and uh, transcription was often sent to the FCC to prove that the station was meeting the criteria for public interest so that they could have their licenses renewed. So it became a very common occurrence, but then it also expanded in quite a few interesting ways. And so a lot of the transcriptions we have are either those samples or they're actually um, in a way like a syndication where they would play it multiple right. times or wow. they would share it regionally or through other stations. So yeah, so when I say transcription, uh, that's just the term they use that uh, radio stations for the recorded yeah. And you're saying that broadcast. roughly 1927 was the maybe the earliest use of this recording technology. I'm imagining it must have been a very special occasion 
was it once a year? Was it once a month? How often were it these? It was expensive, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, don't quote me on that 27. Uh, roughly, roughly. <laughs> like, yeah, about, I might go a little right. bit earlier later. But yeah, it's roughly around that late, the late 20s, mid-late 20s. Um, yeah, and these so, are sort of oversized records that they were recorded onto, like a 16-inch record was a transcription disc. Right, so eventually for more time, as simple as that, they were larger discs and it became a common type of transcription size was a 16-inch record instead of a 12-inch record. I, I guess what uh, I'm trying the- to dig away at is that how many of these transcription discs of the earliest possible recordings of radio history um, exist or had existed in the past? And or is that could have existed. Is that question even answerable at this stage in history? Yeah. No, this gets to the heart of the task force, really, and this is where I lose so many hours of my life trying to track things down and uh, trying to find homes for things. Yeah. So, so basically, um, yeah, I, so the way I would describe what the task force does is that stations largely did preserve materials not only on pressed records but on reels after the war, uh, and a lot of these materials were either archived for the sake of itself or for rebroadcast uh, or for monetization or hope of monetization at a later time. Um, and they sat in basements. Um, in other cases, they were never preserved and they were broadcast. Uh, a show was broadcast and then it was into the ether and then that was the end of the broadcast as far as this planet's concerned. Uh, and what happened was, uh, you know, over time you get stations that are bought out and they don't need the archives. The stations decide to tape over the broadcasts. One of the most common things we hear is that you might have a show that aired for several years and they just kept re-recording over a reel or a cassette until it wore the cassette out just in case they needed it once more that week or we're going to rebroadcast it, you know, uh, late in the evening uh, for filler. Um, and uh, But what we've tended to find is that in 1996 – Um, with the Telecommunications Act of 96 under Bill Clinton, uh, they allowed something called consolidation uh, to happen, which meant that one corporate entity could purchase multiple stations more than before in a specific region and have multiple ownership, whereas there was a very diverse uh, selection of ownership of stations uh, before that. And what happened is when consolidation really began to lead to single ownership markets, um, uh, the history of the local stations was no longer deemed important, and a lot of these materials were just immediately trashed. Um, occasionally, they were given to libraries. Occasionally, when this was happening and materials were being incinerated or trashed, uh, you would have a DJ who would bring home several boxes of their yeah. own recordings, and there's quite a few of those still out there. there are, actually- that's a heroic archetype of the radio survivor uh, uh, genre that we, we love mm. talking about, the people who took it upon themselves to to take a few boxes of archives home with them to preserve them, knowing that they were worth something, even if their bosses and that's, were ready to throw them And that's them a casualty away. that I think we haven't counted well. I know I haven't counted well in thinking about the, about the Telecommunications Act of 1996 yeah. and consolidation. We've talked about the jobs. We've talked about yeah. the loss of diversity on the airwaves. But to mm-hmm. think that, right, because I know I've known people who worked at some of these stations at the time in which they were being actively consolidated and told me about warehousing Equipment because they were going to take you know six studios and combine them into one in one building, and just warehousing equipment and I and it was happening willy nilly. It was happening with very little planning because it was all happening yeah. so quickly. And what, what I didn't really think so hard about the fact that in that right there could be boxes of reels, um, cassettes, uh, records, and such that were important and would 
in in that process is just like what is this garbage get it out of here we have to you know we have to combine five buildings into one i think what's interesting josh shepherd and neil verma of the radio preservation task force that that is that we're talking about today is that preserving the sounds of radio from the all of the decades that radio has existed continues to be an ongoing work in progress there was never really a system in place to keep these archives i mean the people who are doing the work of the radio preservation task force this year are the people who are putting together the system to archive radio uh to preserve it uh going into the future is that right neil verma I mean, that's what we're trying to do. (laughs) I mean, uh, you know, like uh, radio, all the data says that, you know, radio touches more lives than on a weekly basis than just about any other medium. And this has been true for the the last, you know, decades upon decades upon decades. And so we want to be able to to find the materials that help us understand that process a little bit better. Um, And also to that, like, understand the the materials them better. This week, um, a colleague of mine, um, Jacob Smith, just came out with this really interesting project called ESC, where he's taken this kind of hokey um, adventure program from the 19... uh, 40s and 50s called Escape, and he's um, kind of created a podcast that wraps around it and, and looks at it's um, the way in which this show oh, gives us these really interesting ways of looking at um, the Anthropocene, about uh, the way that that um, that you know human beings have affected the world because a lot of these these programs, a lot of the stories are adventures, and a lot of them involve things like you know imperialism, resource extraction, things like that. Right. And how and much the project of this show from the 40s? Uh, how much audio exists of the sound of, of that? If that of that one, there's a lot. Great. But this is an example of what you can do with these kinds of materials, right? So I, I think this project proves a couple of things. One of which is that you know you're able to make a kind of cutting edge, cutting edge kind of avant-garde um, historical podcast using using these these you know methods. Yeah. And second of all, the notion that these broadcasts are dense with historical information. You know, this is something that like has been really important to me to try and think about and try and convince people of that like these broadcasts we think of them as these kind of corny old stories but if you really listen to them and you pay a lot of attention to them you can find out about um you know things like that you wouldn't expect to be able to find about like the history of department stores the history of resource extraction the history of imperialism all these things are kind of encoded in all these little narratives and if we hadn't preserved them we wouldn't even know that so so neil you're the conference director and so far, there have been two Radio Preservation Task Force conferences, and I went to both, and it was just amazing to hear about all of these types of projects, some of which both of you have alluded to, all the, all the people doing work to uncover archives. There, there were interesting conversations between collectors and archivists, which I found fascinating, and the important role that collectors play in this as well. So as you're looking ahead to the next conference in 2020, what are some of the things that that you're hoping to accomplish with that event and and can you t- can you tell us when that is so that we can um, mark our calendars? Yeah. <laughs> well, we're trying to get as close as we can to this what we we're calling the apocryphal date, um which would be um uh late October, early November uh in in 2020 that would be the the hundredth anniversary, um, and and you know it, while it's true of that radio. like of of, well, of of broadcast radio yeah. as we as we kind of know it broadcast voice based licensed radio so you end up introducing a bunch of qualifiers to it so it sounds a bit less inspirational <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm currently but, thankful I'm not an academic I'm just a <laughs> podcaster so I can I can generalize at at my leisure. 
All right. All right. Well, I'll, I'll leave the generalization to you, and I'll, yeah. I'll be the qualifier. The 100th um, anniversary of radio broadcasting coming up that's in right. 2020. Yeah. Um, so so that's that's the main theme. The main theme is is we've had a century of broadcasting. We've had a sen- as we know it. We've had a century of broadcasting history as we know it. Um, so how can we um, rethink you know, rethink broadcasting history for what we, we're creating here, which is really the new archive. Um, one of the things we haven't quite talked about in this meeting, but I always find really inspiring and interesting about the Radio Preservation Task Force is that what we're trying to do is change our research object, right? That we're, you know, up until, you know, uh, the age of the MP3, um, most of the kinds of things people used to study radio were, you know, a few cassette tapes they were able to find, a few transcription discs they were able to find, a few scripts here and there, something like that, and that was your research object. Now we have this research object that is, you know, immense, yeah. but mostly kind of network-based, and it's extremely patchy. So, like, we have a few, we have a ton of stuff from particular decades, a ton of stuff from, from national networks, um, but then, like, these huge gaps all over the place where we don't quite know how to, how to figure out what our research object is. Is. You're talking about audio radio, on computers somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and you know everything from you know um, the podcaster project at uh, the University of Wisconsin, um, which is trying to ingest all of the contemporary podcasts that are being made into a, a permanent database, to like the shoebox that um, that someone who was you know laid off in 1996 happens to have in their basement. Um, how do we stitch all these things together? How do we stitch them in together and create a new archive that, in many ways, is going to make you know the the theories and, and practices of people like me that we wrote 10, 15 years ago obsolete? How do we prepare the ground for a better kind of picture of what the history of, of network broadcasting really is? Um, so that's what I, I kind of want to want to talk about or want to think about in the in the for the for the next conference. Is I think our first one was mostly about you know preserving things in a, in a, in a kind of moment of emergency. The second one was focused a lot on pedagogy and how we bring these things into the classroom. Um, but I think this next conference, and we haven't quite figured out all the themes yet. Um, one of the things we want to do, though, is to, to say, you know, now that we have a new archive, what could the new radio history look like? How could we make it more diverse? How could we make room for a lot more voices than were there in the past? How can we honor our, our kind of, um, you know, roots in cultural studies and social and political history and things like that? Um, how can we, um, you know, make it a, a resource that isn't just dead, but people can actually use to create new artwork? How can we use it to not just look at our own history of broadcasting, but the history of broadcasting in other nations more internationally? So the, I think these are some of the things that might come up in the conference as we begin to put it together. We've got a year and a bit to do it, but but I really want to think of this as a benchmark, not just for the history of broadcasting as a practice, but as a history of broadcasting as an archive, and to say that you know the, the great accomplishment of the Radio Preservation Task Force is the transformation and reconfiguration of what we think of our national archive to be when it comes to this medium. I can't wait. I just can't wait, Neil. And, and I know that you're going to have to take your leave right now. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to be with you. Show. Thanks. Yeah, Bye-bye. wait, Neil, with, the, with oh. the minute we have left with you. Um, yes. I just want to know, I want to hear one thing, one thing specific that you recently uh, heard that was recently archived or preserved that was exciting for you. Um, so I was at a conference, there's an interesting conference or an interesting festival in, um, in Ireland um, that uh, uh, is held every couple of years, it's called Hearsay. 
mm-hmm. and um, it's it's kind of an interesting space. It's in this little mountain village, and it's it's sort of where the radio art world and the radio podcasting world kind of meet once every every year or so. And um, and I, I I went to a, a radio screening by um, uh, by an outfit called Radio Atlas. Have you heard of Radio Atlas? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so they did this this screening of a of a piece that I'd always wanted to hear, um, but I had only ever heard about as a rumor. Mm-hmm. And it's by um, a guy named Stephen Schwartz, and it's called I think the Night the Night Watchman or the Night Guard or something like that. Um, and it's it, he's American, um, but this was done I think in Scandinavia, one of the Scandinavian countries. I want to say Sweden. Anyway, um, uh, and the 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 reason why it's famous is because. Uh, Schwartz invented this re- interview technique um, mm. in the making of this piece, which was, I think, from 1970. And the technique was um, they were interviewing this night guard at, like, uh, the morgue, essentially. Um, mm. And so all the things he has to say about are kind of these spooky, you know, terrifying, gothic, but also kind of um, very earthy things. So it's a bit like... Um, you know, you think of the grave diggers in Hamlet, that kind of character. Right. It's like um, it's his job as well as being spooky. Yeah, but he's going to talk about skeletons and skulls and stuff like that. But he's not going to talk about them. You know, he's going to talk about them as, as things of, of the earth. Anyway, uh, so they interviewed him in an interview and weren't getting the performance they wanted. And so what Schwartz did was he brought him into the studio, turned off all the lights, had him lie on his back wow. and lit candles and walked around him as he as he narrated his story. And this technique has been called the full Schwartz <laughs> since that time. Um, and this, this piece is, you know, theoretically one of the, one of the, the, um, the, the, the origins of this technique. Um, anyway, so, um, so radio, what Radio Atlas did was not only did they get the rights to be able to, to play for us, it us in the original language, but they were also able to obtain the rights to, um, to, to, to create a, a translation, which we watched on screen as we listen wow. to it into English. Um, and so, you know, they, they would never get to be able to do it um, in uh, like online or in broadcast or anything like that. The licensing was very difficult, but only mm. because this piece was really preserved very well and, and thought about very well and curated very well, were we able to take this radio legend and give people access to it for the first time. So for me, it was Amazing. like a really exciting, yeah, we super like, you know, we need a bootleg of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, I really think that what Radio Atlas does is, is just one of the most important things that's happening in, in international radio right now. But that's the kind of thing that, you know, we, we can and we're able to develop a culture of in this, in this country and far, like at a scale far outstripping any other nation almost with so much, so much material to work with. Yeah. Um, but that's the kind of thing I really want this, 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 this conference to encourage, not just, you know, appreciation, preservation, but preservation with a mission preservation with an ability to reuse and this has been true of so many projects we've seen come out of the radio preservation task force or associated with it you know the studs turkle radio archive is another great example of of someone who's taken this incredibly rich natural resource national resource and and put it in the hands of new creators yeah um you know that's the kind of of stuff that yeah and i I just i just feel like it would be something that that you know has been coming out of this project and will continue to come out of this project well neil verma conference director of the upcoming radio preservation Task Force of the Library of Congress. Thanks so much for sticking with us today on Radio Survivor for an extra minute to share that that uh, that nugget of radio. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, and 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 those too. I just want to say that we got. I wanted to announce today and take this opportunity to announce that this morning I was informed that we have been approved for the dates of October twenty second, twenty third, and twenty fourth, twenty twenty 
for the next conference. It'll be at the Library of Congress in the Madison Building on Capitol Hill. Wow, breaking news. We're talking to Josh Shepard about the Radio Preservation Task Force and its upcoming conference in 2020. And Josh, Neil was talking about some of the finds and and some anecdotes about projects that people have been working on as part of the task force. And and on Radio Survivor, we've been lucky to be able to highlight a number of these projects and scholars, including queer radio history. And and we also learned about amazing, intriguing station in Uruguay that that was led by women and and learn, learned about the efforts to tell the story of some of these hidden yeah. histories of radio. The, the incredible history of Radio Feminina, almost totally lost, and like what, what, and um, so fascinating. Please uh, go yeah. to the show notes of today, radiosurvivor.com, to, to listen to that episode. And I, and I know that's a big part of what the task force wants is that that materials are uncovered and brought to light and and used by people and heard and used in the classroom. Um, so I'm curious if. If there are some particularly heroic tales of saved collections or stories that you've enjoyed during your time working on this massive project. Yeah, so there's a few questions here uh, that I'll answer. The first is um, the estates question, uh, which is how do you get something heard? Uh, The second is um, stories of preserving it. Uh, and, and then the third is, uh, you know, the purpose of pres- preserving it. Uh, I'll begin with the second one, which is to say that, uh, you know, a lot of the, the Library of Congress, University of Maryland, uh, Special Collections and Mass Media and Culture, uh, the work at Indiana University and Santa Barbara, and all these major sites for sound preservation uh, are sort of consistently tracking down, uh, observing, and uh, making Um, offers for endangered collections uh, if they have the space, if the materials are preserved enough um, to uh, uh, accession, which means to bring into the different libraries and uh, make them accessible or preserved. And so this work is ongoing uh, really at a a large university and federal scale. Um, At the same time, uh, there's nowhere near enough labor uh, available to do this work just at those very excellent institutions by themselves. And it requires um, what I would call kind of a holistic approach of gathering multiple uh, stakeholding agents who understand everything that goes into preserving uh, radio. And here's the thing that I think the audience should probably understand uh, about the process, which is that it's not just a matter of grabbing a broadcast and then uh, digitizing it and then making it available. So, you know, there's a whole series of different, um, like, groups. It's <laughs> hard work is what you're trying to describe, Josh. Yeah. So I'd like to describe a few Challenges. sets of the process. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So essentially, you need a team to find the materials, and the team has to consistently uh, cold call or work through networks to locate where materials might be. The stations would have to know who the previous DJs are, Uh, They would have to know in the libraries where different audio files in the community might be, um, where the research might be done, what's in what part of the basement that hasn't even been processed, which is the archival term for giving descriptions so that it's searchable, so you actually know what's in a collection. So you have to have that team. The second team uh, needs to understand uh, state laws 
essentially, um, and an estate can make a claim on royalties uh, lost if they're not given royalties, if someone's making money off of it, or in a nonprofit case like ours, um, perceived royalties lost simply by distribution. So in other words, even if we never intend to make money off of it, and we don't, (laughs) it's, and we wouldn't, um, if it's something that's aired hypothetically, an estate can make a claim that even if they didn't know it existed previously, that the public distribution somehow took money from that estate uh, that could have been monetized later. Uh, and further, you know, you're looking at sometimes anywhere from six to 20 estates per broadcast. So one thing that you have to be really sensitive about with preservation is that it is still within um, the copyright laws that yeah. you can preserve under fair use and safe harbor, and which are what we would call exceptions. So it's not actually written into the law that there's fair use and safe harbor as part of copyright law. It's just that there's these weird spaces in the laws that allow for educational nonprofit use for social ameliorative purposes like education. Um, but that doesn't actually mean it's a law and that we're protected by that law. There is no law. So it's even a, so, even an institution simply digitizing a tape for their own private collection uh, could p- potentially <coughs> require um, some help from a lawyer to get it done. That's correct, especially but, if there's a forward face that would be a part of it. So what's if, a forward if, face? A, right. So in other words, if you're going to put it up on a website ah, uh, for people, people to hear it. it. If you're going to distribute it, yeah, usually these things don't happen, just for the record, and most people are pretty happy that researchers want to access this history that hasn't been thought about as a primary source in history for really until quite recently. Um, But uh, these are things we have to deal with, and so there has to be uh, essentially a legal team, and then the people working on projects like this have to understand the laws uh, and I didn't know anything about these laws until I was sort of accidentally appointed director, uh, which was about five years ago now. And the, I'm starting to wish uh, I didn't know anything about them. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and then there has to be, uh, you know, digital infrastructure. So someone needs yeah. to know how to do the digitization, which means transferring it from analog to digital. This requires very sophisticated training uh, so that especially with damaged materials that it can be preserved and saved uh, it has to we have to create interfaces like which we call big data you know by which we put up the metadata or yeah. the information about the broadcast that might also have an access point to the broadcast so that's its own team as well and then you have uh, what I would call just the incentive divisions of a project like this so you have to have uh, professors who encourage other professors that yes uh, they should care about sound as an object of study. And believe it or not, this is one of the more difficult parts of the project, is persuading uh, historical researchers that there's more to history than uh, paper. Yeah. <laughs> so why do you now, think that is? Why yeah. are people afraid of sound? I think it's a high culture, low culture bias that has existed for a long time, uh, that sound in itself is a very modern, preserved primary source, and that it largely is preserved things that have been denounced by high culture, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, such as localism and rights uh, and uh, popular music performance and all these type of things. I would say that this opinion is very dramatically dropping off from where it might have been 30 years ago, but that part, uh, in part explains why it wasn't attended to by previous generations, even though the materials were available. Another Um, another thing that, um, that came up recently 
somebody was talking about the challenges of transcribing audio. So do you think that could have something to do with with scholars being more apt to turn to printed sources because it's easier to process that when you're writing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course, you want um, anything these days possible to be searchable. And so the, the technology is extremely rapidly improving uh, to a point now where you have uh, audio transcription um, apps or services that can really identify 75% or so of a broadcast, including demarcating different voices uh, in the broadcast and then creating transcriptions that are a little bit wonky, but then cut a huge amount of time uh, from previous transcription uh, approaches. Uh, And eventually, you know, you got to think there'll always be a margin of error, but it'll get pretty good. Um, and so, uh, you know, one of the big pluses of that is, yes, the audio archive can actually become a paper archive because we can then turn it into uh, the transcriptions into searchable PDFs. So once we have it down on paper or, or um, you know, program in some way or another, then the program right. can um, be run through a special kind of uh, program that will make certain words searchable for which, those who don't know. Is, I think a lot of people do know about this now. Which is yeah. very mm-hmm. helpful to finding what you might want to hear. But I'm just going to make a, um, I'm just going to make a pitch again to the importance of hearing the voice speak the words as opposed to reading a transcript because you can't tell if a person is being sarcastic uh, unless you hear their voice. You can't tell if a person is uh, joking or angry or angry while joking. Um, there are so many subtleties um, that even the written word uh, can't get across in a transcript, and that's why these voices and these sounds and preserving them is so exciting to people like us um, because they, they contain more nuance and information than, than is possible in text. Yeah, absolutely. And Josh, you were, um, you were just, you're just describing the army of people required. I shouldn't use the word army. Mm. You're, you were describing the, um, you know, the office building or, or academic room filled with individuals either paid or extremely skilled. The team of people who, who are required to do this work to preserve archives had you finished your list no no <laughs> so yeah no it goes on for, so roughly we have um 40 public federal partnerships uh that we work with in various degrees and on various projects uh we have uh 225 uh professors on the project in various capacities and in various levels of participation um and then we have probably about 50 archivists and uh, collectors who are in what I call the constellation at this point of the project because uh, they certainly don't work for me. I'm more of like the labor organizer that puts people together um, and I try to figure out who the great experts are in each subsector and then figure out like whose temperament will work well together and who yeah. is moving in the same direction with the work and who uh, was looking to work with somebody and, I, and people come to me all the time for these things. I also have to be pretty uh, active about it and actually constitute quite a few projects. Um, so one one of my roles is to uh, literally just go to federal institutions and meet with them and talk to them about the importance of their own history, um, and then get the institution to agree to work with other archival federal institutions or state institutions mm. to begin to uh, pilot preservation. And uh, one, the winning formula on that is always education. It's always that. Yes, uh, there are these historical voices that have been potentially left out of the record, uh, and and it's our job to um, revive 
those memories, and we can do so through sound because they weren't preserved on uh, some of the paper trails. So civil rights, of course, becomes one of the more right. important histories for this because there are so many vibrant civil rights histories, but not every one of these histories actually uh, you know, had uh, ledgers or internal correspondence. What are so, some of the favorite sounds that you've, that you've heard as part of all of this work? Yeah, I get to hear a lot of different stuff. I, I would say when I get to hear new uh, college performances, like in-studio performances at colleges from like different punk bands mm. that I always wanted to hear, or um, when I hear interviews uh, with great historical figures that people haven't heard before that give a different inflection on histories that we already know. Um, like there's been interviews with the Black Panther members uh, that have um, a certain reputation historically, and then you realize they're also great chess players um, be, besides being great activists. And ah. I, I just love the way that uh, different types of civil rights histories uh, articulate strategy. And I think we have a lot to learn from different civil rights strategies mm. uh, and, and from all uh, sides of the spectrum of activism. Uh, I think that there's uh, a lot of Spanish language history um, that we have never preserved. And you have a, like a radio bilingue, and that uh, has just a huge repository of cultural and political history that is just waiting to be preserved. And we've begun to work on that a little bit. Uh, one of the things I do a lot, too, is I don't get to listen to things, but I get to read about them. <laughs> because I write a lot of letters for grant preservation, and I work with different universities uh, and institutions, and I'll read about these collections that are not yet preserved that no one's heard about. Um, so one example that we were proud of from last year is the University of Oklahoma was able to preserve a huge number of First Nations and Indigenous Peoples recordings uh, that uh, otherwise were degrading, uh, and that got a very good grant, um, and wow. now it's publicly available on tell, the website. Tell us about that radio, Josh Shepard. What, what, what is this... What are these radio stations? Who are these? Uh, are they community radio DJs? And are they news and public affairs programming? What's going on on these shows? Yeah, I want to make some distinctions here, actually, because I think there's three major areas that are really the most worthwhile areas to pursue for preservation. Mm -hmm. um, the I would say number one is probably journalism history because it's so widely preserved and recognized as a primary source even within research disciplines and among people who just lived through different historical events. So you're saying like There's news stories, radio news reporting from the time period as a, as a good source for, for getting historical information. Yeah. So I think one of the things we have to take into account is interest. And interest then engenders will uh, to do the preservation, which involves uh, activating all of these different sectors. Uh, and all of these different uh, economies of scale, as they say in the media industry, so self-sufficient areas that then work for the common goal of what becomes the program, mm. in our case, preservation. So journalism is something that is pretty accepted as an important contribution to cultural history. Right. And I think just, just preserving journalism alone, uh, especially if we can begin to get journalist historians and journalism historians uh, involved, um, which I've been working on a little bit, I think we're looking at a, just a huge uh, windfall of new primary sources and uh, historical memories that we've lost and forgotten uh, from local history especially. Uh, the second is uh, a little closer to what you guys do, which is what well, you guys are journalists, in my opinion, great journalists. But, uh, hey, thanks, uh, also, yeah, yeah, community radio. And yeah. I think uh, what's so amazing about community radio is what I was saying about the civil rights recordings I get to hear sometimes, which is that uh, you know we have these perspectives about 
um, different histories uh, that are incomplete. And there's nothing better than hearing someone talking to a community of that community with no filtration yeah. and no gatekeeper at all. And what you're, and talk then, what you're talking about mm-hmm. is uh, an African-American community radio host interviewing an African-American civil rights activist on the radio for um, you know a pr- primarily presumed African-American audience. It's a much different document than yeah. a mainstream journalist who's presumably white in the 1960s you know, uh, interviewing a black activist on behalf of a white audience. There's a, there's a completely different, and I still hear this to this day, year 2019, you can tell the difference in, in interviews um, when, a, when the interviewer's point of view is at play. This is a really crucial point, in my opinion, uh, because uh, we shouldn't endeavor to speak on behalf of other people's experiences, and then at the same time, we're missing primary sources that would speak on behalf of different experiences. And this is where I think radio becomes a really intriguing possibility uh, for future historiographical work in the academy, but also just simply like community-based work and community radio listening work. Uh, because community radio uh, since the late 1940s has been uh, the single most important medium for unfiltered perspective. And and to me, this is really uh, the most exciting part of the project in a lot of ways is, uh, so there's always the machinations, you know, and the aesthetics of doing a good broadcast. Uh, and then there's simply just history by sound. And so I usually call that non-theatrical sound, you know, in the case of radio. So we have a lot of radio history that isn't performance at all, which Neil Verma was talking about before. Uh, It's not performance. It's not meant to be performance. It is simply communication and it's political communication. And so I think that if we can really turn a corner on getting, uh, you know, the majority of community and Pacifica broadcasts Mm -hmm. made available educationally, that we're looking at uh, the biggest contribution to historical research in 20th century uh, American history, that is, in American studies, uh, probably in 50 years. Okay. And well, so it, it takes forever, though, <laughs> to get this stuff done. Yeah, well, Josh, you, you brought it up, not me. So you brought up Pacifica Radio archives, and I have some familiarity, both as a former employee of Pacifica Radio, as a, as a um, starry-eyed youngster who visited the archives uh, in the last decade and really saw what an incredible place it was, but also... Um, uh, I don't want to disparage their work. That everyone who were there was a, a very dedicated, hardworking person, but it was understaffed. It was underserved, and the act of preserving radio, just in in the case of Pacifica, the Pacifica Radio Archives, all these incredible radio stations, the five radio stations in the in the network: New York, Los Angeles, Berkeley, and Texas, as well as the affiliates. I mean. It, it like you were saying earlier in today's episode of Radio Survivor, it's a very <coughs> labor intensive, it's a very expensive endeavor to preserve tape. And um, how do we help? How who's who, who's going to pay for it? So um, that's up to Pacifica as an institution. Of course, I would encourage them very strongly to consider the possible uh, applications of this history to research into activism. Uh, more than the station's uh, domain over the recordings yeah. as as they move forward. Uh, I, you know, the Radio Task Force is set up so that we can bring really a lot of academic help through grants. Um, I have my hands on, you know, somewhere between 
uh, eight and 12 uh, grant applications a year that I support. And uh, we, we are uh, a non-competitive institution, essentially. We're a project, not an institution. So we're a non-competitive project. Uh, in, in other words, um, I can't apply for money as the task force director. Uh, and a lot of the people on the project aren't interested in uh, financially benefiting from it. It's a research project for us yeah. as professors. And so, you know, we're, we're good to work with and help out uh, community radio if it's interested in preserving its own history. And one of the things I've talked about, you know, with Pacifica and uh, the National Federation of Community Broadcasters is there are no curricular materials whatsoever in the United States for the history of community radio in film and media studies. So in other words, we have this amazing history that I think is one of the more important histories of American media history. And there's no um, uh, gatekeeping record of it. Uh, there's a few good books about it, um, uh, including written by people who are interviewing me <laughs> right now. And then there's also uh, you know, some places in which it's taught, uh, if there's a specialist in this area. But the generalized curriculum, including textbooks, including literature taught in our classes, acts as though there's only commercial broadcasting. Yeah, right. Uh, there's, so it, it's this notion that a free market is the democratic, democratic expression and the highest form of uh, not only like freedom of expression, uh, but of um, aesthetic performance of what radio should be. And of course, a lot of the great examples historically are commercial media when it comes to aesthetics. But um, I would like to see more activism from the activists to retain the memory uh, beyond the event that is being uh, activated for. So there, there's a really, uh, it's a really unique moment in history, especially with the specific radio archives. You know, as far as I know, as I understand it, there's one amazing vault a beautifully air-conditioned room in Los Angeles that's housing just a, um unimaginable history. I got to be in that vault. It really um, was one of my origin stories, just to walk through the, the stacks of tapes, to read the labels, and then to understand what percentage of those recordings had been digitized, which was a very small percentage to understand what percentage of those recordings could be digitized in one amazing hardworking workday, uh, mm -hmm. an impossible tiny percentage, and to realize the mountain of work uh, to get any of that stuff um, preserved for you know we're only one uh, medium-sized earthquake away from losing it all, really, or or some kind yeah. of power outage that lasts a week uh, could could do a lot of damage to this history, and so. Um, just again, yeah, my uh, my thoughts are with the people of the Pacifica Radio Network, and let's let's get these tapes preserved as fast as possible, and in the in the quickest way possible, uh, the way that that uh, gives the next generation the sounds that they deserve to be able to come across and find. Um, gosh, it's it's a real it's a real mountain that needs to be climbed to preserve those tapes. So, but it but it is obtainable. I want yeah. to be very clear that we can provide the avenues. We don't provide the resources because we're a project, not an institution. But the avenues are available for community radio, for college radio, um, for independent uh, DJs who wanted to preserve their public affairs shows uh, and maybe have them in the shoeboxes, you know, in the attic. Um, it is. We've reached a point where technically 
um, these things can be preserved. Uh, the resources are there and the institutions are there with like Memnon and George Blood and these related digitizing services. So it just requires kind of putting together a team and applying for grants over a series of years or uh, donations to federal institutions or state-based institutions such as public universities. But uh, yeah, I agree. I, one of the things that keeps me up at night is the what if Pacifica radio collection disappears. And I think the where that should drive some fear into the hearts of people at Pacifica or and of course the listeners is that, man, that is a lot of alterity and liminal uh, and um, history of difference that will never be remembered. So much, there is no other way. And there's right. so much, it's so much that like even they, the hardworking people who've been in those rooms in that vault, you know, until they take a tape down and put it on the reel to reel and spin it, that's the only way to be 100% sure of what's on there. And it's just, I mean, just as by way of example, there was one piece of tape that, that will be, sadly, my holy grail forever. But it was uh, one particular author who was, a, um, who was a, a lower figure in the beat writers movement in San Francisco Bay Area, had a show on KPFA. His name was um, Kenneth Rexroth. Oh, and yeah. And Kenneth Rexroth had a, had a weekly show on KPFA and... As near as I can tell, uh, I can't hear it yet, but uh, it's in the archives. It's on reel-to-reel tapes in Pacifica, but in addition, in, including uh, a week upon week of him reading his autobiography into the microphone for, for the radio audience at KPFA in <laughs> Berkeley in the Bay Area uh, in, I, I think it was the 60s. Uh, so Kenneth Rexroth, a beat writer, uh, reading his autobiography, his voice, his book on tape is part of the Pacifica Radio Archives. One of, I'm going to say, thousands of unique documents that uh, that that uh, are sitting there, uh, being 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 protected uh, for the time being, as long as Pacifica is in a, a healthy place. And and that's all. That's that's my um, that's my. That's my backstory with Pacifica and the radio archives. Uh, Jennifer, I want to definitely send it back to you to get us back on track. So, Josh, what is your third category of areas that you think need preservation? Yeah, so uh, the, the third category of the news is very good uh, because that, that's the public broadcasting and educational broadcasting history. Yeah. And the American Archives of Public Broadcasting is creating a one-stop shop by which um, all of this history could be available at the Library of Congress, at what they would call a portal in uh, different reading rooms there. But then a certain number of it uh, that has survived the estate challenges or received permissions is now also available online in a terrific interface. Uh, and so I think public media is similar to communi- uh, community media insofar as that it brings localism into the history. It's not just national voices and national right. figures. And there is, of course, some degree of filtration that you um, don't find in community media because uh, there is a contextualization for the listening audience. But at the same time, it is such a rich history of both cultural history and performance um, and the same kind of local voice, um, even if it's framed more professionally, aesthetically, sometimes uh, than community radio uh, for the listenership, more like a commercial broadcast, but with more community-based orientation, perhaps, on yeah. some of these broadcasts. So I think public media, though, uh, with the NPR team, NPR Rad, American Archives of Public Broadcasting, uh, the work at the University of Maryland, uh, Special Collections of Mass Media and Culture, um, I think that these 
different groups are creating this sort of foundation for future research that is um, ongoing, uh, but already has paid huge dividends for research into cultural history from roughly the 1950s till now, uh, post-war era to now. I mean, it sounds like what NPR, uh, National Public Radio, has done to preserve that history is sort of um, an exemplar, like an example of um, how useful it can be if the community radio station's archives could step up and accomplish something of equal um, effort. Yeah, and American Archives has worked with quite a few community stations recently. Uh, And, you know, my thought about it would just be that it's great and more. (laughs) Let's just keep doing it. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and hopefully all of... You know, that's why I like bringing some of these projects to light on Radio Survivor, too, is that hopefully that inspires other stations to think about how how should we be preserving, archiving our history so that people can enjoy these, uh, enjoy the work that we've done for years to come. And, you know, preservation is an ongoing project. So, Josh, it's been great talking to you about the Radio Preservation Task Force. It, could you give us a quick glimpse at the upcoming conference, when that will be, what that's all about. So the next Radio Preservation Task Force conference will take place on Capitol Hill from October 22nd to 24th, 2020 uh, at the Madison Building. And one of the things we do with the task force is try to bring in every single possible person of interest on every single topic uh, to the same panel. So what you usually find at a conference is a specialist for broadcasting being at a conference for broadcasters, or you have an academic historian of broadcasting being at an academic conference for uh, broadcasting historians, uh, and, and so on. And in this case, uh, if we take a theme, and let's say that theme is something like college radio, you know, we'll put Jennifer on a panel uh, with different um, historians, uh, hopefully practitioners from college radio, and then specific uh, uh, agents of interest from uh, university archives or even the federal sector to all talk about the same uh, phenomenon from different perspectives in order so that we can expedite preservation and then research of the topic. So the Radio Preservation Task Force Conference uh, attempts to create a holistic way to address uh, the different ways that everyone's already contributing and then streamlining these different contributions by creating conversations, but also then founding projects in which different sectors are working together. I think that's great. I mean, there's so much relationship building that I think you're doing in your work where, you know, a lot of times it's sort of a hunt to find things and, and also very important to connect different people to to get the work done and also to get an understanding of the materials that are being discovered and um i that's that that really is something that i was struck by at previous conferences that that you really work to bring people together rather than having people in these silos that they often exist in mm-hmm. so you know one of the goals will be that we are able to uh, not only have this meeting but that the meeting also provides a deadline for certain projects that are moving along uh-huh. <laughs> at different paces to finish their work, <laughs> but also to just begin new work. And I think out of the last conference alone, uh, several projects emerged that have already received, uh, you know, federal and different philanthropic grants uh, to do preservation. That's great. Uh, another time I'd love to come back and talk about 
um, how, how difficult it is to just get the money yeah. <laughs> for these projects because I would love uh, for people to not, I don't think people should be donating out of pocket for this kind of work, but to have a sense of that preservation is exceedingly expensive uh, yeah. and, and, and it's not just expensive, but it has to go through all of these steps I described previously to even point. get to the money. Um, but what this does is it at least sets groups up that they can begin to seek the money in a way in which they're not necessarily competing with each other and perhaps even working together towards a common goal. And of right. course, again, in case the listeners are just joining us, this is vitally important uh, to do today, not tomorrow, because a magnetic tape um, is not on this earth forever. It, it has a it has a sell-by date. It, it, it goes bad and the sounds uh, are no longer available for our ears unless they're digitized. Right. Uh, there's current estimates on some types of tape, and it depends. Some of the, actually, the more recent ones from like the 1980s on cassette, and of course CDs are more endangered than some of the earlier reel-to-reels. Yeah. Uh, but in some cases, we're looking at, archivists tell me, 10-year shelf lives until these materials have decayed beyond being playable. Wow. So it, it's sort of beyond an emergency uh, where it's sort of an ongoing crisis that I've learned to sort of weather <laughs> when yeah, I hear new stories like, about endangered collections. It's like the task of our generation to, to really take it seriously and, and preserve the sounds so that the next generation can, can use their ears and make their own judgments on these voices. Absolutely. Very important work. Well, Josh, Josh Shepard. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> We're all going to say it together. Josh Shepard of the Radio Preservation Task Force. Thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. We'll have you back uh, real soon. Thanks for having me. Well, my thanks again to Josh Shepard, Assistant Professor of Media and Communication Studies at Catholic University and Director of the Radio Preservation Task Force, as well as the guest on the first half of the program, Neil Verma, who had to go, who had to leave. Neil is Assistant Professor of Sound Studies in Radio, Television, Film, and the Associate Director of the MA in Sound Arts and Industries at Northwestern University and Conference Director for the Radio Preservation Task Force. Neil Verma was a guest on a very recent episode of Radio Survivor where he gave us sort of a guided tour, an audio tour of the incredible history of radio drama and its ongoing innovation as well as uh, just <laughs> like radio drama. So such a gorgeous thing because... In a lot of ways, the world of podcasting is bringing a lot of new life back into the genre, but it's a genre as old as radio itself and one that we here on Radio Survivor uh, hadn't ever talked about before other than in passing. And we devoted an entire episode uh, with Neil Verma, who really has a passion and a depth of knowledge of both the history, but also like what was produced last week. Uh, Neil Verma listens to the sounds, has a passionate strong opinion about why these sounds matter and uh, shared with us on that episode of radio survivor so check out the show notes radiosurvivor.com to listen to that episode as well as everything else that we discussed today Uh, chances are uh, we have a link to that stuff at the show notes at radiosurvivor.com this radio program is also a podcast you can subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts for free radio survivor is everywhere where podcasts are available. You can also uh, find out more about how to support the work. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. On behalf of Jennifer Waits, who produced the episode today, and Paul Reismandel, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for listening. And for the web audience, friends, thank you for listening to the long version, the podcast version of today's episode. I want to let you know that 
we have a Patreon, and the Patreon has a goal of reaching 100 members. That's it, just 100 people, 100 individuals, uh, which is a very attainable goal as far as our uh, podcasting stats. If you are listening to my voice, you need to know that you are in a very select group of individuals who care about radio, who love radio as much as we here at Radio Survivor do. Um, there are only a handful of you. There aren't thousands of you. And these hundreds of listeners on the internet uh, are a really unique group of people. I, I kind of wish I could know all of you. <laughs> and that being said, I really mean it. We always say this on the show. But go ahead and send us an email. Let us know why you care about radio and who you are. And you should know that Radio Survivor is myself and Jennifer Waits and Paul Reese Mandel and Matthew Lassar. And that's it. We're, we're four people who love radio, and then the other individuals who come on to the show as guests or uh, write for the website, because it is a website that writes about stuff, and uh, like people used to do 10 years ago more often. Um, that's it. And so when you share who you are, when you say hello to us, you're saying hello to those four people. And so much of what goes on on the internet these days feels very uh, creepy and uh, impersonal and data miney and uh, for sneaky, like for profit in a sneaky way. Like you get something for free, but really they're uh, uh, stealing your economic soul or, or trying to figure out how to um, Facebook direct message advertise to you to change your vote in the next election. That kind of stuff uh, happens. But Radio Survivor is a project of four individuals who love radio and so if you say hi to us um, that's who you're saying hi to so send us an email at podcast at radiosurvivor.com to let us know that you're there what you think of the show what you think we should cover next which episodes were your favorite um, which episodes you didn't like we'd love to hear from you so that being said we're trying to reach a goal of a hundred supporters on patreon i think we're currently have about 30 and uh, we set a deadline of sometime in the summer. I think so. We have about eight weeks to go. I think. And if we reach that goal of 100 supporters on Patreon, and let me let you know that Patreon uh, is a, a fundraising website that we use that allows us to ask for a donation of one dollar a month minimum, say. And if you give us one dollar a month, if 70 people who are listening are able to support us in that way by pledging a dollar a month we get the majority of that money and the vast majority of that money and then we're able to use it to think about planning for the future of the work that we're doing and what's great about that is if we know that we have 150 dollars a month coming in from patreon right i'm really talking about pennies by the way we're not trying to get paid uh paul reese mandel jennifer waits myself matthew lazar uh, this is a labor of love, and the the money that we would be getting on this fundraising campaign goes towards, uh, you know, the internet that we use, uh, different services that 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 we uh, pay for that make the work of producing a podcast or creating this blog easier. Uh, and the goal for this summer is to begin work on an incredible project that I'm so passionate about, that Paul is so passionate about. Uh, to begin gathering an oral history of the indie media movement, which uh, 
what can I say about the indie media movement? Hopefully, some of the listeners who are hearing the sound of my voice right now know a lot more about the indie media movement than I do. And so I shouldn't tell you what it is. But uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's what media activists, it's what radio people were doing with their time in the 90s. And it led to an amazing flowering of community radio stations, the largest of which in the history of the United States, possibly the world. So many low-power FM stations have come online and are broadcasting right now because of the work of the indie media movement of the 90s. And uh, this is in the last five years or last 13 years, these low-power FMs uh, are on the air. And the indie media movement also uh, was an online movement. It was really one of the first times that um, a group of individuals who cared about creating community media uh, gathered in an organized fashion to create online community media at a time where uh, that wasn't available by, from corporations for free. There were no Facebooks. There were no Googles. Uh, there was no YouTube. And there was no Twitter. And so, you know... Uh, creating community-led media that was available for free on the internet uh, to, to tell the stories of what's going on right now, in right now, case being the 1990s and early aughts. Um, what a unique moment. And we'd love to tell this story on Radio Survivor. We would love to interview every single person with a story to tell about the indie media movement of the late 90s and early aughts. And to do that work, we're asking for your support. We would like to have 100 people give to the Patreon campaign. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash radiosurvivor, or you can go to the Radio Survivor website, radiosurvivor.com slash support. You can give a one-time donation if if you don't want to uh, um, use Patreon or, or, or you know uh, commit to a monthly donation, but really... At, on Patreon, all we're asking is for a dollar a month minimum. You can give five dollars a month if that is easy for you. If uh, you know, for some people here in America, five dollars is like a dollar, and for others, it's like fifty cents. So to find out more, radiosurvivor.com/support or patreon.com/radiosurvivor, and just know that uh, we really appreciate it. I know that you're probably, if you're still listening, you probably give to a lot of media. Uh, organizations that need support you probably give a lot of money to the radio station that you love which is great and we're not asking for that level of donation we're just asking for uh, some symbolic support from the audience that cares about this work so thank you so much uh, thank you for listening to me the next time we make this pitch it'll be a shorter pitch but I just wanted to to put that onto today's podcast again thank you uh, to today's guests uh this was a like the radio preservation task force is so cool and i am extremely proud that radio survivor gets to sort of be the radio show that cares about what the radio preservation task force is up to not to mention that jennifer waits is a member of the radio preservation task force and that's uh such a privilege to work with jennifer and to be able to uh put those professional contacts those those radio-loving people that Jennifer meets doing this work, uh, put them onto the radio stations that air Radio Survivor, as well as into our podcast feeds uh, for everybody to learn more about this incredible work. You know, 
this is not the pitch anymore. <laughs> I hope you guys don't mind. It's just so important because there's just no money in it. Like, this is not where media and capitalism meet and make a profit. This work, caring about community radio and caring about the kinds of podcasts that have a beautiful overlap with community radio and caring about the history of radio uh, outside of, I don't know where, you know, academia, we have lots of guests who who uh, make a living teaching uh, radio history, but it's not, it's not a, uh, it's, it's not like the, um, <laughs> it's not the NFL. It's not, it's, it's not a part of this culture that's making a consistent profit and generating a lot of, uh, amazing heat in the, in the world of, of uh, finance capital. <laughs> like it's a very personal and tiny community of uh, caring individuals who make all of this possible uh, at radio stations all around the country. Same, that's true for all of the stations. And Radio Survivor is uh, striving to sort of help knit that world together in a way that I think um, there's a few other organizations, obviously, that are also doing that work. And we have them on the show on a regular basis. So I just wanted to say that because it's just such an honor to do the work and I really uh, am proud of what we've accomplished so far. We put out a weekly radio program, a one hour radio program dedicated to the love of non-commercial radio in the United States and around the world. And uh, I'm very proud of what we've accomplished so far in the last, uh, oh, I guess, you know, I guess one of the reasons I have to make this speech is we're heading in towards, we're entering the bicentennial i think that's reasonable no it's we're heading towards the 200 episode the the 200th episode of the program uh i haven't counted how many of those programs have been the weekly radio show which now airs on uh multiple stations around the country which is such an honor and uh and canada and uh I'm very proud of the work. It's been such a privilege to do the work. I hope that we can continue to uh, to do it, especially every week, uh, and give it away for, for no money to all these radio stations that air us, uh, to let listeners know as well as that, that these communities that gather around radio stations, that they matter, that the stations are amazing and part of a constellation of amazing stations, and that there's a really incredible history uh, behind these stations. Uh, radio, again, like we talked about on today's program, radio has been around for 100 years, and the story of radio and its 100 years is just unfathomably <laughs> diverse. And there's so many great stories to be told about uh, the kinds of radio that we love, the kinds of sound that, that, that we're passionate about. And so I'm looking forward to the next 200 episodes of Radio Survivor. I want to thank Jennifer Waits and Paul Reismandel and Matthew Lazar and you, the listener, uh, for contributing to this work. And we'll see you again next week.